Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Chat with Cheney. Today's episode is the S&P 4650 special. I've got one of my good friends here with me and a pretty interesting episode, so stick around. Not too smart, just out of school. A teacher's pet and modern fool. a busy time of the year for you or, or what uh, it's it's getting there i um we're starting to see a lot of the year-end activity with most finance businesses and lots of transactions are ramping up so nice nice well uh i appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to do this with me um i promise it won't be rewarding so uh <laughs> everything i expected <laughs> here we go uh so the this first thing um i just kind of wanted to touch on is this um this article here by by lynn alden uh now for anybody at home if you're not reading lynn alden's research you're missing out big time uh just an absolutely great analyst uh she actually has her background in um engineering so to kind of get a, like a different perspective uh on on a lot of things very analytical but very concise um so you can read the whole article on your own time. There, there's going to be a link in the description. Uh, but the big thing I wanted to bring up is, oh, where the hell does she say it? Something in here. Um, da, 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 if I can find the exact quote. It effectively, it points the finger at uh, a lot of the supply shortages we've been having and talks about how inflation supply shortages are pretty much one in the same um or not one in the same but how politically speaking there's a lot of um politicians who are saying it's not inflation it's supply shortage and she says no 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 um that's what inflation is uh okay so here here's here's the the take out of her piece here she says uh that third variable is controversial because it's political. Neither fiscal authorities nor monetary authorities in any country want to take any part of the blame for inflation. So they point heavily towards supply chain issues as being the sole cause of the inflation. Back in the 1970s, they kept saying it was transitory as well due to one-time factors. However, it is important to keep in mind that every inflate, major inflationary period is associated with shortages. Uh, that's what inflation is. Price inflation occurs when the money supply goes up a lot more quickly than the supply of products and services, and specifically which products and services get price constrained depends on where our weaknesses are, meaning where we lack abundance. Okay, so pretty much the takeaway from this is that all of the nonsense about uh, kind of I guess like all of the, the government speak about, oh, it's not in inflation, it's just supply chain issues. There's one in the same. Like we, we if, if you have inflation, it literally a definition means too much money, not enough goods. So the supply chain weaknesses are more apparent. So I think it's just important to keep that in mind um, when you listen to all these talking heads kind of run you around in the circle. Um, the Fed is probably the worst offender of it. The Federal Reserve... Um, they came out recently, and they said da, 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 um, a lot of the, the price issues are relative to the you know the supply chain. Um, but again, they're they're one and the same issue, so you can't really um, just point the finger at that. I think that what Lynn exactly what you were kind of saying, and what she's really pointing out um, is that it's more apparent today than um, previously we've had especially with the fact that it's easily recognizable that we have a supply shortage mm -hmm. and then it's easily recognizable that we have an inflation issue. Um, so those two coupled together should be a double issue, uh, except kind of like what she's pointing out is the political uh, side of things. They're not taking into, they're not, they're not taking blame for part of it. <laughs> they're pointing it all towards <laughs> the supply. So, right. So it's, it, it's easy to see that it, it's not, just one or the other right now. I think politically, and, it's much easier if you just go, oh, it's it's the big bad corporations. Nobody likes uh -huh. them anyways. So um, if you can just point the finger over there uh, and then you abstain yourself from all responsibility, you know, great. 
it's it's pretty much right out of their playbook. So <laughs> yeah. the um the the big thing uh that I kind of liked in the way that she framed a lot of this, um, you know, because she's got a lot of pretty charts and everything too, and um get distracted by pictures easily. So uh, that's kind of tends to be where I, I, I go down. But at the very bottom of this article here, um, she has this chart of personal consumption expenditure. So she shows from 2012 to um, when this article was written, which is in August. So um, I guess I should have disclaimer that in the beginning, you know, it's a, it's a little bit dated. But um, I just think that speaks to her foresight because she was talking about this before, you know, like QVC NBC was talking mm-hmm. about it. So um, the... Personal consumption expenditure. She looks at uh, spending, you know, personal spending on goods and personal spending on services. And she's got this tweet here um, from Kelly Evans. And Evans here shows this chart uh, where she says the spending on services has more than recovered from pre-pandemic levels, even though we have a lot of service sectors and industries that are still not 100% open. And meanwhile, goods, massive, massive explosion uh, more than 20% above the pre-pandemic level. So uh, it's like the equivalent of like a decade worth of growth in personal spending on goods happened in like the span of like nine months. So I think that's a pretty clear indication that you have all this money sloshing around chasing too little amount of goods and services. And I think... Uh, goods is probably more obvious because they're more supply chain constrained than the services sector. Um, although we're starting to run into issues, I would like to see um, this chart updated maybe in a month or two uh, because uh, we're starting, to, we're having a lot of those labor issues, which I think is in a sense kind of like a supply chain issue um, if you think about it, if you do some mental gymnastics, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, commentary? Thoughts? Anything? So, uh, like you said, there are plenty of free charts in here, um, and specifically looking at this one, uh, the, like you said, the growth over the past nine months has exploded, um, and that in tandem with people's, I, I think a lot of it is kind of the shock that they've had. Um, speaking at a personal level of like, oh, it, toilet paper, great example. You know, it was off the shelves for months. Why? <laughs> Um, because there was a scare and that scare led to a shortage and that shortage uh, led to supply increase and it's a never-ending cycle. Um, So I think COVID had a lot to play into this, but I think it was also something that um, in general, the bubble of goods and services I think was rising um, in terms of what was out there versus what uh, generally speaking people had actual income for. And to your point, there's a lot of money sloshing around right now. So do you think that um, a lot of like the supply chain issues and the kind of, um, I guess like the situation that we're in uh, maybe was aggravated by COVID, but we, we'd still have these issues if it weren't for COVID? I, I think it was inevitable um, and in the end, because it, as you see, it, specifically speaking in terms of the United States, we've always been assuming company or excuse me not company uh country in that we've consumed way more goods than we've made um and it's coming to the point where we're consuming more than we probably uh will ever even obtain to make for ourselves so we're very dependent on foreign countries Mm -hmm. and with covid um like you said it aggravated the situation in that it really showed our deficits Uh, it showed where we're um not able to rely on ourselves in specific scenarios and that we have to heavily rely on other countries right and that that's a good or a bad thing uh depending on what way you look at it but um in the end we don't have a system in place to uh cover ourselves when our supply is higher than or excuse me when our demand is higher than our supply so it it leads to issues of shortages and i think that's kind of the bubble that the united states is in right now is oh shit we we don't have enough (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like yeah. And we do it. so what do we do um so i i think it was inevitable and this was i don't want to say a good example of it but probably something that it, we needed to see eventually yeah so um you sounded a lot like peter schiff um because he has the same kind of and um chris irons also 
they, they have the same kind of look where their take essentially is um, you can't have a successful economy indefinitely where you consume more than you produce. Right? Like if you think about economic productivity, you have to produce something in order to be a successful economy. And we don't produce anything. Um, right. is, you know, following out our manufacturing base over the last couple of decades was not a good move in the long term. So now we're kind of dealing with the repercussions of that. To your same point about like, if you don't produce something, you create structural weakness um, for that product or, or, or anything. And that doesn't mean that you're um, necessarily going to immediately have, you know, price spike or uh, a price volatility in that product. It does put you at risk for it. Um, mm. I think back to oil and uh, like um, the, the oil crisis of the, like the, the 1970s, you know, where um, kind of we rationed like gasoline and stuff like that. If you reduce the supply that's produced domestically, you create a risk for um, the, for those kinds of situations. And so I think that what we're experiencing today is a lot like uh, the rationing, or I guess not the rationing, but um, kind of the issues we had with the oil crisis back then, but with a lot of the other products, because since then we've transferred the production of not just oil, but a lot of other products overseas. Um, for a number of years, the number one export of the U.S. has been the U.S. dollar. <laughs> you know, we just pay everybody else for products, and it's catching up to us. So I don't know. Interesting stuff. Again, if you if you're not um, following Lynn Alden, you're, you're not uh, getting her research. Highly recommend it. She's got free stuff on her um, on her website. She does have like some some paid subscriptions. All of it's good. It's very worth it if you if you do des- decide to um, uh, become a member. If not, uh, the uh, the free content is is probably better than you'll ever get from you know JP Morgan, in my opinion. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. I I would say go give her a follow or um, at least check out what she's publishing because it's really good stuff. Okay, so <clears throat> real quick, I just wanted to switch gears a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to spring this on you because you have no idea what this is. But yeah. Harry Schwartz, ever heard of him? Uh, sounds familiar, but give me a little background. Okay, so I'll just p- read his Wikipedia page here because Wikipedia is the most reliable source of information. Um, so born August 15th, 1946, says he's an American psychologist um, and is the Dorwin Cartwright Professor of Social Theory and Social Actin- Action at Swartmouth, or Swart... Uh, Moore College uh, since 2016, visiting professor um, at some very small schools uh, such as uh, Ber- uh, Berkeley in California, Oxford, um, you know, just some two-year programs. So uh, um, he has written a bunch of books, papers, this and that and everything. Um, but I want to talk specifically about his book published 2004 2005 it's called the it's called the paradox of choice why more is less um and he talks about a very brief you know like cliff notes overview he talks about the downside of having way too much choice in industrialized society um as an example you know like you go into an ice cream parlor and this is the ice cream story yes yes so they've got you know they got um vanilla or chocolate and you might be able to pick which one you want out of vanilla or chocolate and be pretty happy with your choice Uh, but if they've got 300 different flavors you're much less likely to make a choice uh quickly um or even if you do make a uh, choice you may um yes because you've given up the opportunity cost of 299 other um, yep. flavors and, and basically what he's basically what he's saying is that um you have what's known as decision paralysis evolved where you just don't make a choice and you also have um this issue where your expectations go up as you increase the uh, amount of choices you have um so essentially you'll never be satisfied because you have too many choices okay so you're saying wow that's great uh that has nothing to do with finance and you'd be correct um but I want to talk about specifically um, managed retirement plans where the client is not financially involved 
at all. You know, they're a cop or a firefighter or a teacher or whatever. As a retirement plan, they have to choose what funds to put their money into. They're presented with 50, 60, 70 different funds. So <laughs> the problem I've noticed with a lot of clients is that they, one, they have no idea how to evaluate the funds, nor should they. You know, it's not their job. So shame on whatever employment uh, they're working for that's not helping them choose. And two, um, there's way too much choice. There's too much choice. And he actually, in his book, talks about this, um, this, this kind of snippet specifically, where he says that as the choice, the amount of choices you have for retirement allocation go up, the lower the participation rate out of the pool of employees is. So he pretty much says that um, as you add more and more funds, you get a decreasing participation rate, even if there is, um, you know, like employer matches or um, they, they don't, they want to invest, but it's just too overwhelming. They get that, that decision paralysis. So that's a major problem. And the, the biggest thing I think that um, is not really talked about in finance these days is the fact that an advisor or um, something like if you have an advisor, that's great. But if you don't work, just expects you to make those kinds of decisions on your own um, and be happy with it, even if you have no idea what you're doing, which make, means a lot of people just don't do it. So I don't know. Do, do you have any experience like that? Do you have any family members or anything like that? Or um, do you have any experience yourself where um, people just don't participate because it's overwhelming? The time. <laughs> um, there, are, there are so many instances where you have uh, at, at work, it's most common. Um, I obviously, you know me, and I'm involved with my finances. Um, I like to understand kind of what's going on, and I ask a lot of questions. Um, at work, I see it very often. I'm very open about talking about finance, I'm very open about talking about my personal situations and what I'm dealing with and what I'm uh, choosing to do. And at work, I see very often that somebody says, oh, it's too confusing. There's too much out there. I, I don't know what to do. So I, I'm not really doing much. And, mm -hmm. Or, oh, it's it's too confusing to get involved into 401ks and retirements right now. So I'm just kind of doing the bare minimum. That Which is crazy do. considering the line of work that you're in is, yes. I mean, it's not it's, perfectly financed, but it's pretty but closely it's related. Still, Right. Yeah. yeah. So um. So it's, to it's, to see that in your line of work versus yeah. you know the cop, the teacher, the fireman, who's also having that same issue, I'd, I'd imagine the rate of participation is even lower for them. Yeah. Probably because a, a lot of it is um. You you think because you're in the finance world, you just know enough to do enough sort of thing, but <laughs> you you doing and I'm using air quotes here enough is the exact same as somebody who isn't in the fine arts world and is just doing the bare minimum. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes the bare minimum isn't even enough because the, like you said, the employer doesn't help you. And um, in, in college, I actually was given the opportunity to read a book called Nudge. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Nope. Uh, that is a book about choices. Uh, and it's actually kind of in line with uh, Barry's topic of opportunity cost and having too many options and the point of nudge the synopsis of that book is you need to put the best option forward for somebody first so that you can nudge them towards the better opportunity and then mm -hmm. let them make their own choice um, so you can't force them but you can give them an like an option to it, it's kind of like when at a store a good store will put the milk in the front because they want you to get what you came into the store for and then get out um, the the bad stores <laughs> will put the milk in the back and that's because they want you to, they nudge you to buy other products in times uh, to get to the milk. So there's good nudging and then there's bad nudging. Um, okay, and, that makes sense. And all of that kind of in lies with opportunity cost and choices. Um, so coming back to the finance world of retirements and opportunity costs and choices, having that initial nudge, that push uh, really helps. So uh, where I work, it they start you off at, I think, a base 6% um, of your paycheck goes into your retirement. Mm -hmm. And that's better than zero. So they're nudging you. <laughs> right, six is better than zero. <laughs> so they're nudging you to stay involved, but they're not, you know, they're not driving it. So they're, they're helping a little bit, but 
it's you know it's it's what I'd call a nudge. Um, so again, the the choices, the overwhelmingness, it it lies again on I think the company to help with all of those choices and to drive some of that because it, a regular person is not going to know this and they shouldn't have. It's, right. Like you said, it's not their job. It's their yeah. well-being and they should be involved, but they shouldn't have to know everything. Mm-hmm. I agree. It, but, um, there's kind of this weird double-edged kind of sword effect, I would say. Um, because, so like, here's a here's a program that has pretty good participation rate considering the, um, let's say, the clientele. And that's the, the TSP. Um, which is the thrift savings plan. So th- this program is like a retirement plan offered to federal workers. It's used by members of the military or, you know, um, federal, you know, prison guards, whatever. And there is quite literally five choices. That is all you get. Um, you can put your money in one of five funds or any combination of the five funds. So it has, in general, a pretty good participation rate compared to people that are those same people that are presented with the option to the, or the opportunity to invest outside of that plan. Um, so effectively limiting the choice has a positive impact on the number of, uh, on the rate of participation. But at the same time, uh, if you, if, so like, if you don't have a financial manager, great, you know, like it, it's simple, it works for you. If you do have a financial manager now, the constraint of only having five choices, um, which may or may not be properly suited to the client, starts to, um, it, it kind of hurts, right? So it kind of depends on whether you you are equipped to make those decisions or not. If you're not, then five is great. If you are, then five is terrible because uh, you don't have as much flexibility. And those five options are, um, you can invest in the Russell 2000, the S&P 500, um, the MSCI EFA index, which is just, um, you know, international, like blue chips, um, government bonds or corporate bonds. Those are your five choices. That's it. it so all relatively uh, safe. yeah, like all relatively safe and appropriate for anyone, you know, that has a long term investing horizon, um, except for maybe corporate bonds uh, right now. Uh, but, um, it, what, what I've run into a problem is sometimes, uh, like for people that are getting closer to retirement and still want to use their TSP, where do they put their money? Right. Because they have, they have three funds that are exclusively equities and they're, um, you know, index funds, two that are fixed income, um, and government bonds yield nothing. They actually yield less than nothing since inflation's out of control and, yep. uh, Corporate bonds also have a negative real yield right now, which is crazy. You are paying money to take default risk. So I'm not sure why anybody would do that, but um, you know, I guess that's just a conversation for uh, whoever to have with their uh, money manager because I would fire them on the spot. But anyways, um, so if you if you can't put it in the government, um, you know, fixed income, you can't put it in treasuries because they don't yield anything and inflation's out of control, and you can't put it in corporate bonds because that's also a negative real yield and if you know because inflation is out of control and you're taking on all of the added risk of default so you're left with the s p 500 the russell 2000 and the international index well now you're down to just equities and if you're going to be retiring in three or four years all an all equity portfolio is probably not appropriate for you so now you have this limiting of choice that's kind of negatively impacting you uh, because there's no alternative, you know, you can't put any money into gold. There is no value uh, fund. You know, there is no um, kind of there, there's there's nothing special or unique. It's just those I've now narrowed down to three. So think I don't really know what the solution is because in an ideal world, everybody would have some kind of um, idea of what they were looking at and what they were doing. A slightly less ideal world, everybody would have a financial advisor, and then you, you know the tier below that I guess is the world where we live in today, where you have the opportunity to get a financial advisor, but it's expensive and most like nine times out of ten not necessarily worth it unless they're actually going to do um, you know a good job, which is very hit and miss. And if you don't know what you're looking at in the first place, you're not going to be able to evaluate how your financial advisor is you know helping you. So. 
ultimately, I don't know what the right number of funds to have is. Is it five? Is it two? Is it 500? You know, like, I'm not really sure. There's kind of, there's got to be a number where there, you're maximizing the benefit of flexibility, but you are uh, keeping the the number of the, the the participation rate high. You know, I'd imagine there's a point of diminishing return where like if you're at 499 different options available and you add, you know, a 500th, that probably doesn't add a whole lot of benefit to you. But going from five to six would probably add considerable benefit to you. So I don't know. There's no point to this. This is just me rambling. Um, so I guess we'll get off this topic. But <laughs> I mean, a hard back to to your initial comment of all of it, it, it goes back to Barry's comments of opportunity cost and choosing. And, and a lot of it comes down to human psychology uh, mm-hmm. in the end. And e- even if you did have five more choices in there and you had 10, some people would still see that as overwhelming and some people would still see that as not enough. So, you know, it, you'll never be satisfied any way you look at it. It's just right. a matter of right. how do you yep. satisfy the majority? be sad so, forever and uh you have no way to, to deal with it so better get I used to it just, yeah that's life <laughs> yeah <laughs> great thanks for coming <laughs> uh, so yeah oh my goodness all right <clears throat> slight transition again um oil do you look at oil at all do you do you, do you follow it track it i'm just gonna say no okay perfect um i don't either i just pretend to um, sometimes they even pay me to do that. Um, so, so I've got this chart of oil pulled up here. I'm just looking at like the, the rolling front month contract. So this is light, sweet, crude futures. Um, currently looking at the spot, which is December 2-1. And I'm paying very close attention to this for a number of reasons. Um, so we're in this inflationary period, right? And uh, I think... A big part of the issue um, we're seeing with inflation is related to the cost of energy, which is uh, skyrocketing right now. Oil is the single greatest product multiplier in the economy. I just made that that term up, I think. Um, But uh, what I mean by product multiplier is you can take an amount of oil. Let's say you take a monetary amount of $100 worth of oil. How much productivity can you produce from $100 of oil? You invest, let's say, $100 um, into securing oil, and that lets you produce, let's say, um, randomly, it allows you to produce $1,000 worth of productivity. So you have this massive benefit being able to take something and turn it into something else. And it's like, wow, shocking. That's like how the you know modern economy works. Um, yes, correct. But cost of energy is going up so much that that multiplier effect is being condensed or it's being shrunk considerably because your base input cost is so much higher now. Um, so uh, again, no real um, point to this, but I guess my question is, um, do you think there is kind of like a, as, as oil, as the cost of energy goes up, we get less economic productivity or output as a result. Um, and we have that same thing going on in tandem with higher inflation. So less economic activity, more inflation. And I think that's setting us up for just a lot of disappointment in the future. Any thoughts? Hey, you got that about right. Like <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> like you said, the, the base costs of oil and the energy costs. So, so say that $100, um, it still gets you that that thousand of productivity, but in the end, it's not $100 anymore. It now costs, say, $250. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that $250 is still only producing that thousand. So your margin is way smaller than it used to be. So you're not going to invest in something that's not giving you the margin that it used to. So you're going to pull back out of that which leads to supply and demand issues, which leads to all of the other issues, inflation, everything that works. It's a snowball mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And until it pops, until it becomes a crisis, um, I think it's just going to keep going. And- well, you look at like other, like, I don't know if you follow what's going on in Europe at all. I try not to because it's Europe. Um, but uh, <laughs> there's like, they have like a legitimate energy crisis going on. Like 
the, with the cost of natural gas uh, here i'll pull up natural gas too because that that's that's gone crazy yeah so this thing went from like two spot 92 um in like june july uh to a high of six spot 46 in uh october right so for people that are dependent on natural gas as an input cost to their productivity well uh you just took you know like literally uh 100% jump in your input cost or whatever the heck it is you're doing. So if you're in a low margin business, um, good luck, you know. Um, so that, again, that's less product. You're, you're obviously not going to be able to make it. So you either pass those costs on to consumers in the form of inflation or you, um, you, you go out of business and now you have less goods and services out on the market, which is kind of the same as inflation as we discussed earlier right like if you have the same amount of money in circulation but you take supply of things to spend the money on off the market it's that's also inflation so i don't know this whole thing just seems crazy um and this is for delivery in in the u.s so in europe it's actually it's actually worse but what scares me the most is i see this getting way way worse like oil of oil right now 85 spot uh no sorry 80 spot 69 nice uh so it's like 81 dollars for a barrel of oil if you were to inflation adjust let's see how far back can i go here okay so the high for oil was in july of like 2007 right topped out at like 147 bucks a barrel okay so let's just say um what what is 147 dollars in today's terms um so if in 2007 i purchased an item for 47 dollars i'm literally using the calculator uh do, do. okay so adjusted for inflation uh the u.s government lists the cumulative inflation rate as 33.4 percent since 2007 to now so that's 196 dollars for a barrel of oil uh, just if if we take the highs and we adjust it for inflation. So looking at that gives me reason to believe that the $80 barrel of oil that people are already very up in arms about is not even remotely close to um, the real crisis level. Like when, pe when, when people say like we're going to have an energy crisis or we're going to have like a, um, a supply crisis, to me that means like the price uh goes crazy like it doubles in the period of a couple of months you know and that that's kind of what we saw in that 2007 2008 period um before it all fell apart uh so i think uh, ultimately oil is a great um not even an investment like not even like a way to speculate like oh i'm gonna make some money on it but like a way to hedge your portfolio to actually reduce the risk of um of having like economic uh pitfall in your portfolio just by owning that that oil um because i think there's a lot of room for it to go ahead it's relatively cheap on an inflation adjusted basis there's lots of signs that it can, can go up and oil rising tends to precede economic decline um so if you have a a, a poor economy that might affect your portfolio negatively Owning oil is probably a good way to hedge some of that out. What I'm saying, does that make any sense at all? Probably not, but... A little. I mean, <laughs> from from my perspective on it is oil, everyone needs it right now. It's I, I don't even know what the market cap on uh, in terms of energy, what oil is. I'm going to make oh, it. Oh, I don't know. It's too. huge, though. <laughs> pull it out of my ass and say that it's probably like 98% <laughs> of all energy <laughs> is oil. Yeah. Uh, so it, everyone needs it. And, and I think that that's part of a, another topic of discussion, just energy in general, mm -hmm. and the cost of oil and the cost of other uh, energies like solar or wind, um, is we've had so long to invest in oil that it's so, what I would say, cheap to make now. Um, it's so cheap to get uh, in terms of what it used to be. Um, and we have greater supply because we're able to get even more uh, efficiently. Mm -hmm. So we've had so many years to invest in oil, and now we're hitting the crisis of, oh, everyone needs it. We have energy uh, issues and whatnot. Well, 
I would hope that maybe this sparks a trend to start investing in other energy sources and starting to make them cheaper and make them more meaningful, um, not to necessarily replace oil, but make your portfolio of energy diversified <laughs> for instances yeah. like that. Yeah. So. Well, well, to speak to that point of like to replace or not to replace here, I sent you this chart here. Um, check this out. This um, chart, uh, da, da, da. it pretty much shows that when we create new ways of generating energy, um, it's the very first chart on, on this uh, site, we don't eliminate the use of the previous form of energy, right? Like, right. So we just kind of stack it on top of whatever we were already using because we constantly need more and more energy. Like if you think about- So many more. Yeah, so like when we discovered like, oh, oil exists and we can use that, we didn't stop using coal. We actually use more coal now than we did when we first discovered oil, right? Even though coal's been around for like a lot longer than, than oil. Um, mm-hmm. So my, my point is that um, there is no, there, there's I think a fallacy in that a lot of uh, people, specifically politicians, suggest that we will be able to replace um, you know, like oil, gas, and coal with the new means of energy production that we bring online, when historically that hasn't been the case. And if you think about the world, there are so many countries that are just starting to need massive step-ups in energy consumption, right? So like I've been a big bull on Vietnam for the past two years, um, Southeast Asia in general. So one of the interesting things um, that you'll see in a lot of countries that are developing is there comes a point where the general population becomes wealthy enough to afford um, air conditioning. <laughs> and when you can afford air conditioning on a consumer level, uh, the demand for energy explodes. Um, usually that's because the ability to afford air conditioning on a consumer level also coincides or um, you know, comes at the same time as a lot of other things that are energy intensive. But I follow you know, air conditioning specifically because that is a concise way to track that, that number without getting into the nitty gritty of it. So I look at really weird stuff on my free time. You know, it's Sunday afternoon and I go and I look at how, you know, how many air conditioners are being purchased in Vietnam. Uh, and people think I'm weird and that is correct. But um, the point is that there's like an S curve right, where like, don't really need a lot of energy as an undeveloped um, country or society because you don't have a lot of like um, electronics or a lot of like industrial production going on. Then you have this explosion where you kind of come up and you industrialize your society, Uh, you know, consumer uh, demand rises all at once, kind of like, you know, a la industrial revolution in the 1800s for the US, right? Where our our coal demand and our oil demand exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you become very industrialized, um, modern, you know, country, you still incrementally add more um, demand for energy, but you don't, uh, not at the same pace. So that that's why I'm saying like, you kind of have that S curve, like you have a slow slope up and then you kind of have this huge jump in a short period of time. And then you have a, another slow drift up. So it kind of makes an S on, uh, if you think about that graphically. The number of countries that are coming into this era uh, where they are just starting at the beginning of their S-curve, um, not the beginning, but like the, the exponential portion of their S-curve, is huge. I mean, absolutely um, massive. You look at most of uh, Africa, they're all kind of hitting that point at the same time. You look at a lot of um, Southeast Asia, they're kind of hitting that point at the same time. You look at um, Latin America and Southern America, they've been in their exponential growth phase for a little, you know, a little bit of time already. Um, So uh, my outlook on energy is that we're going to need more of it, not less of it in the future, which seems so obvious and rudimentary when you say it out loud. But then you look at the political action that's being taken and, um, they're villainizing, you know, energy producers and there's no spending. There's no um, capital being allocated to energy producers these days, unless it's green energy, which is great. 
I think we should invest in green energy, but we're going to add that on top of what we already produce and we're going to need so much more of it. So anyways, to make a long story longer, uh, yeah, I would own oil um, and energy as a part of a balanced portfolio uh, because I think there's a you know tremendous opportunity uh, and it's it's likely to protect you um, from the negative effects of not having enough of it, you know, because the price will go up as 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 the supply stays constant or even diminishes relative to demand, which will create economic problems for the rest of your portfolio. But the price appreciation will be large um, in what you own. So kind of as like a balancing factor to it, uh, not financial advice. So, um, yeah, that's my... That's my soapbox. That's what I'll. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'll get off of. <laughs> I mean, it, it it ties into a lot of uh, kind of what the world is seeing right now in terms of finance in general. Um, exactly to your point of view, the air conditioning and these developing countries. Um, and I I actually read an article the other day. I forget what it was called, but it was something along the lines of you thought Bitcoin was an energy consumer. Uh, watch out for air conditioning and it, it went into your point exactly of these developing countries are buying up air conditioners and uh, the cost and the energy to run an air conditioner meant everyone has one now so to your point exactly energy is just going to be uh, it's just going to keep adding to it you're never you're never going to lose it it's almost essentially a basic human need at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and and that need is always going to go up because we have an ever-expanding population. It's never going to decrease unless we start instituting population control, but that's a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, exactly to your point, it's a very, and the chart that you showed, it's, it's a diverse portfolio of energy, but it's ever going to grow and moving in that direction and we're always play a pretty safe. Yeah, I mean, this chart has um, traditional biomass on it because it goes all the way back to 1800, right? So, like, they're showing, like, even wood, like, going down to the forest and chopping wood down and burning it. We have increased the amount that we do that, um, you know, in, like, the last 30 years, yeah. which even though we have all of these other new technologies that are coming online, we have increased the amount of wood that we burn, which I think is just... Um, it really speaks to the whole thing. Oh, uh, I want to get your opinion on this whole electric vehicle revolution. Um, one, what do you think that means for the energy complex as a whole? And two, um, do you have any thoughts on kind of like the future of the, the industry at all? Or like just, just I guess, in layman's terms, like what do you as a potential consumer um, think of electric vehicles? Um, I, I've got a handful of opinions. Um, I think they're good. I think they're bad. It, it's, it's either way. Um, I, I don't think that they're going to replace the, the gas vehicles. I don't think they're going to be the almighty figure of everything, but it could be an, a, a good alternative. But to your exact point, going again, back to the energy and consumption is electricity is another form of energy. How you got there initially, how, like, how did you create that electricity? Was it from natural gas? Was it from oil was it from hydro either way you're consuming another form of electric so in the end is it a benefit is it uh, not really a benefit it, it kind of weighs itself um, and a lot of the talking points that i see against it right now is lithium uh, the extreme cost to get it and the extreme hazard that it has on the planet mm -hmm. but that also lies in tandem of the same hazard of oil and this it's it's a yeah. What do you think about these um, these electric vehicle companies getting carbon credits? So essentially subsidies from the government being um, quote unquote environmentally friendly when one of their main um, input products or input costs is like the one of the number one most environmentally destructive products, which is like lithium and these rare earth metals, which are not easy to get, um, require an immense amount of energy to get, uh, are generally found generally but nowadays are found since all the other you know uh locations have already been exploited in um you know kind of biodiverse areas like rainforests and stuff like they're, yes. they're I, I find it so hypocritical that like tesla uh we'll just use tesla because everybody knows i hate this company it's like 99 percent of scam anyways um <laughs> like tesla gets a carbon credit for um 
selling electric vehicles when nothing about their industry is any less carbon intensive than, say, like Ford or GM manufacturing a vehicle, uh, which I think is insanity. Like, one, the government should not be out there picking and choosing who, uh, you know, lives and dies uh, in the, the capitalistic realm based on, um, you know, essentially picking favorites because that's what they're doing at this point. And two, um, it's so hypocritical because it's not environmentally friendly to go and mine a bunch of lithium in the freaking Amazon rainforest uh, mm. and then sell your car to, um, you know, rich urbanites who uh, could care less about, you know, the rainforest in the end anyways. I, I just, I, I don't understand how that doesn't get talked about. I don't understand how there isn't concern over that from people who claim to be concerned over it. But, uh, it's, it's greenwashing. It's it, the the government is making them look good because they're investing in green air quotes there energy, <laughs> and they're they're putting a good value the, the greenwash face forward um, to what consumers see on the front and and that's just it is most people don't understand where batteries and lithium come from they don't understand the impact and those that do um, are using it to defend oil. And that defense is not valid because oil, again, is dirty too. So it, it, no matter what way you look at it, energy in general is dirty. And it's just a matter of what the consumer sees up front. And they see electricity as clean because uh, it doesn't create smoke and it doesn't smell bad. It, it has no impact <laughs> to them because it's what the consumer needs to see. So it's greenwashing. All, oh, all it's all exactly to your point, like out of sight, out of mind, right? Like they don't exactly. have to... They, like, oh, I feel good about it uh, because I don't have to, um, you know, like I don't, I don't have to be directly um, notice what's in front of me. Mm-hmm. I, so I, I got this chart of Tesla here. Since um, I'm, I've already pissed off everybody, uh, I might as well talk about it. He, this, this is insane. This is actual insanity. So this is a company um, that is now, oh, how many trillions? dollars is this worth like one point something i'll pull up the market cap here okay 1.02 trillion dollars okay so let's look at the market cap of ford uh 77 billion um again this is what i i don't understand is that from a fundamental point of view something's clearly not right here something's just not right i mean we were talking about shorting this um we we talked a while back um, when this was at like $900 pre-split. <laughs> Remember that? Uh, what is this, like February 2020? Um, I think it was, or or something around there. Um, thank God I did not. <laughs> um, I, I am short, full disclosure, I am short Tesla for index funds that I own because I want to get the Tesla exposure out of the S&P 500. I don't think it belongs there. I think it's... Um, it's incredibly risky. So to have that in, a, in an index fund for somebody uh, is, it makes no sense. So if I'm long the index, I'll short the Tesla exposure out of it to be neutral, um, which is a different point, I, I guess we could talk about. But this is, this is one of absolute largest companies in the entire world. It makes up an insane portion of the S&P 500, which is the main investment vehicle for the majority of, of the world. Um, so it, it gets like free money coming into it every day, and it's so inflated. I just, how does this end? I don't see any way that this ends well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so somebody somewhere is going to be very disappointed, uh, and unfortunately, I think it's going to be the guy who's got a bunch of this crap in his portfolio uh, that's five years away from retirement and doesn't even know he owns Tesla uh, because mm-hmm. it's in its index fund. Thoughts? Exactly like your point uh, from from February. Uh, it, the I'm gonna say inflated, probably bad term to use here, but the inflated value of Tesla, and I, I think a lot of it is emotional value. A lot of it is people think that Tesla's a great company. It's got a lot of backing. Um, you know, they sell like their cars and they make any money off of that. So <laughs> how that works out is whatever. Um, and and like you said, it's I, I do believe a little bit of it's a scam because um, it. It's all using the current hot topic of electricity and the greenwash. For, for sure. 
And do you ever, so, so like what drives me crazy among any, you know, many other things. So like to your point where it's like just the hot topic of whatever it is, what was it? Like not even two months ago, Elon Musk came out on stage and he like had the, the robot during the presentation that like did the, um, it did like a little dance or something like mm-hmm. that during the presentation. Yeah. And he was like, oh, well uh, now we're going to make robots. You know, it's like, yeah. okay, so so you you can't make a car um, that that sells for a profit. So uh, now you're gonna claim that you're gonna make uh, robots, um, which you know, good for you, I guess. But like the kinds of things that he's claiming that, that they'll be able to do are incredibly difficult topics to solve. I mean, they we have any brilliant minds working on these kinds of issues. So for Tesla to come in and say like, oh, you know, we have no experience in this, but we're going to solve all these issues within the next two years with our uh, our robots. It makes no sense to me. Like, I don't understand how... And, and, and the stock goes up on that announcement, right? Like, it, it rallies. When in reality, it's like, this just shows the lack of focus from this company. It just shows that they don't have consistent um, vision to actually produce anything that is of economic value. Oh, goodness. So, um... <laughs> like, Imagine if Kraft Heinz came out and said um, they're, 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 in addition to producing all of their um, products, you know, their mac and cheese and their ketchup, uh, they're also going to start drilling for gas, right? Like, they're not related. So, yeah, you could make money drilling for gas, but should that be your primary focus as a consumer foods, uh, you know, consumer brand uh, company? Probably not, because your management team is not experienced in that, and it's not focused. But at least Kraft makes money. You know, like they at least they have the part of their business that they claim to be, um, you know, uh, operating under control to the point where it makes money, like a lot of money. So for Tesla to come out, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I don't understand. How it get? How does it rally off of this announcement? Ah, it, it, whatever. <laughs> I'm probably gonna also have people who don't like me for saying that Elon is he, he, he's a swindler. Oh, 100 <laughs> percent. He knows how to twist the views. He knows how to get people's minds, and he knows how to take advantage of people thinking that he's wise and that he knows a lot, which he probably does. And I'm. I'm not diminishing his knowledge at all, but he knows what people want. Mm-hmm. And when they hear it, he's going to benefit. And right. that's the thing. So like, it, it's just like him tweeting, hey, Bitcoin, uh, we're going to the moon like that. <laughs> and then he rallies and then he, he sells out and then he shits on it and it shoots down and then he buys back in and, you know, it, he's swindling. And yeah. It's, yeah. No. So, so to, the, to the point of, of the swindling, do you follow the Solar City trial at all? Uh, no. So, so Solar City is um, kind of in this legal uh, battle, and uh, I don't know enough about it to to talk accurately one hundred percent. So, anything I say, assume it to be wrong. Um, but essentially, Elon made uh, his cousin like one of the managing directors or the CEO or something of this of Solar City, um, because why not? You know, somebody that has no business managing anything. But here you go. So there's some nepotism there for you. But then Tesla bought a bunch of Solar City funds, Tesla funds, um, after te- Solar City started to have financial trouble. So essentially, bonds were trading below par, and Tesla came in and attempted to, uh, or didn't attempt, but bought up a bunch of these bonds in his cousin's failing business. Um, so where is the SEC in all of this? Like yeah. you, you can't just do that. Like, how is this guy not in jail? <laughs> no. Leveraging his his company, which you can't. Yeah, you can't trading. take your company to go out and and save your cousin's company. Like, that's totally illegal. You have an obligation to your shareholders. So. Yes, one hundred percent. So I don't. Again, I say I've said I don't understand like a million times, but it's I just don't understand. It's mind boggling. That, that this is allowed to happen. And there's nothing. There's silence from the SEC in terms of this. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, there's a court, there's like a court filing going on. There's a, there's a hearing and everything. Um, but like, it's not 
to the to the this the scale that it should be and this has been going on for months so at the same time that this court hearing is going on the like tesla has like added you know like 400 billion dollars in market cap to the company so <laughs> clearly nobody cares or at least the people that are buying don't care you know i just oh goodness all right all right moving on before i piss anybody else off uh da, da, da. okay first uh sorry last topic that i've got on my mind uh, and then um, nobody's listening anyway, so I was going to say people can leave, but <laughs> no, nobody's here. Okay, so people keep sending me these, um, these financial um, advice on TikTok. Have you seen any of these? I love those. Oh, my God. I need to make like a compilation of these. It's it's incredible. Um, it's shocking um, how foolish I've been. Because apparently there's so many good strategies and just free money everywhere that these TikTok influencers have figured out. So I you don't I, need a degree. I greatly regret my um <laughs> my personal my investment. Yes, my, my, my personal investment of time learning all this crap yep. when I, I I could just, you know, go out and buy uh Dogecoin or Shiba Inu or whatever the heck they're um talking that day of the week. Um any thoughts on the the financial? Let's call it the the financial TikTok revolution. Let's call it a revolution. Oh, I've I've definitely seen some of them, and I I definitely do stick around to watch them because I'm curious what people say <laughs> and, and how they how they get away with some of this stuff. I, I love the ones where it's like how I became a millionaire in less than two months, and it's like look at all these stocks I traded in. Yeah. My yeah. one of my favorites is mommy and daddy gave me a hundred thousand to play in the stock market and I lost it all and here's how I lost it. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> cool. I love nice. this stuff. Yeah, well, b- because like, um, it's no different than somebody saying, um, here's how I became a millionaire in two months and uh, then it cuts to the scene of them, you know, standing at the roulette table for three hours. Yep, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, that's the reality of the situation. Um, but my biggest issue is I have clients, right, that look at this stuff and they say um why would i ever pay you anything when uh joe schmo off the street is is blowing you out of the water um i could have been a millionaire three times over by now if i just gave my money to the tiktok financial influencer you know (laughs) (laughs) which you know so i think um like a lot of this is kind of um hurting the industry which it is what it is you know like um the industry were better maybe it would be more thriving you know if, if financial advisors were better they probably wouldn't be having to compete for this so it probably speaks to kind of the um lack of quality um in some of the industry but um the other thing that i think it uh is is very interesting is that the consumption of media has been condensed you know in just the last seconds. yes in just the last couple of yeah. years i mean it used to be news right so like what used to move stocks was uh you know UVC, NBC, Jim Cramer would get up on Mad Money or whatever and say, oh, you got to buy Bear Stearns, right? And then move Bear Stearns or whatever. Um, so, and then it shifted to kind of more like online articles where people would write an article and people would read the headlines or whatever and go out and buy or sell a stock. So that would move it. And we moved uh, to tweets <laughs> you know somebody yeah, yeah. tweets about it and it starts moving the stock and so you know your 240 characters or whatever is now changing the market cap of something by a couple hundred billion dollars um now the point where uh, some dog themed currency gets like a 30 billion dollar market cap because uh, a seven second video of somebody twerking to it uh is on the front page of t- TikTok. So, what's the what's the next step? Where do we go from here? How do we condense it? How do we, you know, I, I think a lot of it plays into the fact that I, I don't know. Twenty years ago, it, nobody was managing their own finances. Nobody had access to the tools that we have now, and mm-hmm. and a lot of it was barrier to entry. And now the barrier to entry is me going out lo- or uh, out online and signing up for an account and now I can do whatever I want. I can trade yeah. stocks, I can do crypto, I can do whatever I want because there's no it, it's it's open reign which is great for consumers to an extent, but 
it also creates a lot of risk because people are doing things that they don't have experience with. And then right. they're getting advice from people on TikTok, which practicing legal advice is illegal that you can get fined for that. But practicing financial advice, you can't get fined for that unless it's arbitrarily you're inflating something purposely. But... Well, that, that's a thing. They're all talking their own yeah. book, right? They're like, yeah. they own a bunch of this crap and they're pumping it up. Again, yeah. where where is the SEC in this? How are yes. you allowed to just go out and, and pump up whatever to your followers? Um, yep. Or like people will go out and pay for followers to get a big user base. And then, you know, like the, I don't know how the algorithms work. Once you start accumulating file followers via payment, you get more via natural um, accrual, right? Right. And so they're like paying to pump their own positions. And these are these these. Um, like like crypto and spe specifically like these are so small to start off with that any amount of money you know real money and move them in a big way because there's only their market cap is what you know five million dollars or something like that well if you've got mm -hmm. um you know uh six million followers and the market cap is about five million well all it takes is your followers putting in a you know even if only 30% of your followers take your, you up on your advice and put in $100 to this thing. That's going to make a, that's going to move it in a big way. How is that, um, how is that being allowed? Like, where is regulation? Because we used to have it. Yeah. No, I don't quite understand that. Um, add it to the list of other things I don't understand. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's the world we live in, so. Yeah. Uh, and, and so one last point of, um, like, how are people doing this? It, I think a lot of it harks back to the, the meme stock of GameStop and, <laughs> um, and the Reddit page, you know, uh, mm -hmm. of we're going to stick it to the man. And I, honestly, I, I do think that some of Wall Street, uh, Wall Street has always been an enemy to the, I'm going to say the underfolk, the, the people who are not invested, the people who don't have invest mm -hmm. because they have a lot of money have a lot of opportunity to get money off of other people's work because it, in the in the eyes of somebody who is a laborer um somebody on wall street just dumps 100 bucks into a figmentary thing and then they get a next month like that that to them doesn't make any sense because you just transacted once and you made a thousand dollars right whereas to them they transacted 500 hours worth of labor and they only made 200 dollars or something mm -hmm. like that you know it, right. it doesn't make sense so Sticking it to the man, I think, is a, is another part of what we're seeing with some of the uh, TikTok revolution. Oh, you're absolutely People right, and so much they have the ability to replicate. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's so weird to me, though, that um, going out and buying shit coins is how you're going to stick it to the man. Like, <laughs> you're not <laughs> getting anything know. for your money. Yeah. You know, like so. Um, but it's it's the trendy new topic. It's the thing that. It, it makes sense to have an online universal currency, but for something for something made up and somebody can create on the spot out of nowhere with no backing, that doesn't make sense. But people don't see that. And people don't understand. So mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and to the point of being the trendy new topic, um, I'll, ju I'll just tell you this. So, like, uh, the, I go to the barber to get my hair cut, as many people do, um, and I have gone to the same barber for like 15 years maybe a bit more at this point now um and i don't talk about work i don't mention what i do anything like that well they had a new guy working there and never i'd never seen him he'd never seen me so he was like oh da 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 what do you do and i was talking to him i told him within 30 seconds the guys in the barbershop that I've seen for 15 years now um, are talking to me about their stock portfolios and their their cryptocurrency. Actually, uh, it was um, AMC. Uh, they're t you know I've got a lot of respect for these guys, but um, the one guy who I've known forever is is telling me how you know like I got to get into Born AMC and it's uh, it's going to you know a million dollars a share or whatever the hell it is and and all this stuff like the squeeze and just which, which is nonsense, you know. Um, I don't think that um, if I had accidentally uh, referred to my job maybe even so much as like four years ago, 
uh, there, I, I probably wouldn't have gotten anything other than, oh, that's cool, man. You know, like, how, how do you like it? You know, mm-hmm. um, so I just think like the amount of financial gambling um, is so pervasive through world nowadays. And I don't think that ends well because we have a lot of historical instances of that and it never ends well. Um, like ever, there has never been one recorded instance where it ends well. So I'm skeptical to believe that this time is different. Um, yeah, I guess I'll leave it there with me being uh, annoyed at my barber. <clears throat> nice. Right. I think that's a good, uh, yeah. It's a wrap. It's well. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, thank you so much for joining me uh, and listening to me uh, other everyone. You don't understand. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, yeah, so I'll see you around. Easy. All right. So that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>